Well, you can join me in turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab one. We have them under seats nearby. And you can find Mark 16 on page 853 in those Bibles. And this morning, we are looking at the decisive turning point in history. We're looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus as we've been reading about and singing about and praying about already. And here's what we're going to see. The resurrection is what uh, the author J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, it's what he called the eucatastrophe of the story of history. So here's what that means. Uh, Tolkien wrote about how all uh, fairy stories, it's what he called fairy stories, these fantasy stories, um, have a moment where there is a sudden turn of joy. So a catastrophe starts to happen when everything looks like it's unraveling toward a tragic ending. But then in the best of these stories, Tolkien says there is a sudden happy turn which pierces you with joy that brings tears or near to tears. So it's this moment of great relief in these stories where hope seems lost, defeat seems final, and then you realize that sorrow and universal defeat will not be the end. There's a sudden decisive turn, one that you hoped for but you may think never would come. And if you've immersed yourself in this story or in this movie, then when that moment comes, it lifts your heart and can bring you this intermingling of joy and sorrow almost near to tears. You know what I'm talking about? Those moments? So he calls that, those moments um, are eucatastrophes. So this catastrophe is a tragic unraveling at the end of a drama. Uh, But he added you in front of it, which means good. So it's this good turn toward comfort, relief, and joy. And Tolkien says that these moments in stories that we experience are so powerful because they reflect reality. Isn't that interesting? They show us something of how things really work in the story of our world. These mythic stories, these epics resonate with us so deeply, in other words, because you and I are actually living in the midst of a story right now, the true story of human history. So just think about those moments in your favorite books or your favorite movies when darkness is turned to light, when there's a rising from the ashes. I mean, why do those resonate so deeply with you? It's because you are part of a story. They are echoes and reflections of reality, the true story of the world that we live in. So this morning, we're going to see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that turning point to the true story of human history. It's the main turning point. So the main turning point in human history was not any particular war or world war or the founding of any nation or even your own birth. But the turning point of human history was that morning when Jesus rose from the grave. And that's the turning point in the story of the Bible, which tells the true story of the world, and we're part of it. So, 
We've been in a series of sermons these past weeks called Unfolding Grace, where we're looking at the story of the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, seeing how the Bible tells one coherent story, and it's the true story of the world. And so now we come to Jesus' resurrection. So let's read together Mark chapter 16, the first eight verses here, and then we'll pray. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene... Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your words that you've given us here. And so we pray that you would help us to understand what we've just read and to respond wholeheartedly to the realities to which we're considering this morning. We pray that you would do this work by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a bit striking. I've just said that the resurrection is this turning point, this eucatastrophe of history, and then we read the resurrection narrative, and it seems fairly short and sweet, doesn't it? Uh, hardly seems epic. Um, well, how is, how is it then, this great turning point? Well, let's walk through this to see. So there's three aspects of this story that help us see the significance of the resurrection. And those three aspects are that this is part of real history, this is part of a big story, and this is part of your story. So let's consider this together. So first, this is part of real history. We see this most clearly in verses 1 through 5. Uh, most people think that the resurrection is a myth. Some people think of it kind of as a spiritual way of saying that the heart of Jesus' movement continues and we can find inspiration, you know, love springs eternal, something like that. Others think that the early Christians made up this story. They tried to convince people that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Others think that some of the early Christians may have thought that Jesus rose, but they were hallucinating. Their leader died, but they were so disillusioned uh, that they hallucinated and convinced themselves that he rose. But as we read the story of Jesus' resurrection here, there are several aspects that show that the most plausible understanding here is that this is actually real history. So first, look at the way this is written. I mean, as we read this story, we may have expected more fireworks. I mean, why wouldn't Mark show Jesus uh, rising up like a superhero. This all seems very understated. So Mark just describes three women here. They followed Jesus in his ministry. They had just seen him die 
a couple days before, and so now they're going to the tomb to anoint him. So they've bought spices, they're going to anoint him, which would have been to cover the stench of death. They weren't expecting Jesus to rise on this day. And they've come to the tomb, they see that the stone is rolled away, and there's a young man there. And it says in verse 5 that this young man's there, and he says, don't be afraid, he rose. Now, that's probably an angel. Um, But Mark just says he's a young man because that's often how angels appeared, and apparently Mark doesn't want to go out of his way to try to make this seem more fantastic in those kinds of ways than than needed. He describes him as a one man, or as as a young man. So why does it all seem very ordinary? Well, it seems that if Mark was trying to make up a good story, he wouldn't have described it like this. He's just recording what happened. Second, notice how Mark draws attention to eyewitness testimony. He wants us to know who these women were. He gives us their names in verse 1. We have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. So he mentioned these women before as well. He mentioned them by name as he was describing the crucifixion of Jesus. So you can just look back in chapter 15, verse 40. It says, There were also women looking on, looking on at the cross from a distance, among whom were... And then there's the three listed again. So a scholar named Richard Bauckham has helped us understand what Mark is doing here by just considering literary conventions of the day. Mark is dropping their names as eyewitnesses. All through the narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection, Mark starts dropping a lot of people's names, actually. And it's somewhat new because if you read the Gospel of Mark up until this point, you'll see a lot of the same names over and over, the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, and you won't get a lot of other people's names. But then they come in a flurry here in Jesus, the story of Jesus' trials and his death and resurrection here. And so we want to ask the question, why? And the answer is because Mark cares about the credibility the historical credibility of what he's writing. So those 12 disciples were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry in large part, but where were they during Jesus' trial and crucifixion and resurrection? They were hiding. They were afraid, and they fled. A few of them were here and there at different parts of this, but they by and large missed this. And so Mark is relying on other people as eyewitnesses so that as he tells this story, he doesn't expect people to just, just believe it because Mark wrote it, but there's eyewitnesses that can corroborate here. So that one of the clearest examples is in chapter 15, verse 21. It says, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country. So you think, okay, that should be enough, right? But then he adds, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Right? So that's interesting. We have to notice these things. Who are those guys? You know, we don't have much of an idea. He hasn't mentioned them before. Why in the world would he throw in that detail after even giving Simon's name these sons of Simon? And Richard Bauckham gives the most plausible answer in light of the writing conventions of the first century. And that is that Mark is writing names of people who can corroborate the story. And Simon, who carried that cross, is probably dead now. And so those who Mark is writing to can't go to Simon and confirm this. But Simon's sons are alive, Alex and Rufus. Go ask them. They'll tell you their dad's story. And so now at the cross and resurrection, Mark is sharing the names of these three women that can confirm the story. And even in Jewish culture, evidence was confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So Mark is presenting his case. He wants us to read this. It matters to him that we read this and think, this really happened. 
And there's a third detail that points to this historical reality, and that's the fact that these are women. If Mark was making this up to convince everyone that this was historical, but it really wasn't, then he messed up here because in that culture, the testimony of women wouldn't typically be um, considered worthy of being official in court. They had too low of a social status. And so if Mark wanted to be taken seriously in his culture, he wouldn't have told the story this way. That would have undermined credibility. So why would he have done it? The best explanation is because this is how it happened, right? Those were the women who were there. And Mark, as part of Jesus's movement, has embraced the values of Jesus's kingdom, which honor and value women differently than the culture of that time did. There's an esteem there. So for Mark, there's no lack of credibility here, uh, men or women alike. And so Mark is saying, I'm not making this up. And if you don't believe me, ask the witnesses. So I'm taking time to unfold this for you because this matters to Mark, this matters on the pages of the Bible, and it matters to us matters to you. We can't just take or leave the resurrection. I mean, if it didn't really happen, then we can. It's an interesting story. You may like studying stories and history, but it really doesn't matter um, in the end. But if it did happen, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then He really is who He said He was. So, I just encourage you that if you need to take more steps in considering this, that you would. You have questions about Jesus. I'd love to talk to you love to share some resources with you as well. And if you have questions about the Bible and its teaching, this is the first question to settle. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Did it happen or not? So, this is part of history. But second, this is part of a big story. One thing that surprised me most about reading this story, again, this past week or two at the end of the Gospel of Mark, is that this is very thin on details. For as big and as important as this moment is, we don't get the impression from reading this account, do we? I mean, just reading those eight verses, it was short, it was simple, it was sweet. Um, That was surprising. And so, thinking about it this past week, I realized that Mark didn't need to go into a lot of detail here because he's actually been preparing us for the significance of the resurrection all along the way. The whole gospel of Mark, as he's been preparing for Jesus' death and resurrection, has been preparing us so that when we get there, he doesn't need to spend pages explaining it. We've already understood what this moment would mean when it comes, right? Like sometimes great movies, as you're watching them, sometimes final climactic moments just happen so quickly and then fade away. And if you only saw that moment and nothing else of the movie, you would think, well, that was interesting. But if you watch the whole movie and you've been enraptured in it, you realize the weight of those final moments and what they mean. And so, Mark is doing that as, as well. And if we understand what Mark has been showing us about Jesus' life and ministry, we'll understand just how, how much of a joyful turn in history this is. So, turn back with me then to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Over the next few hours, we'll slowly work through the Gospel of Mark. If you didn't laugh, I might have been tempted to do it, but now I know you don't take it seriously. Um, So, just a few highlights. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, the beginning. This is the start of a story of the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And the resurrection 
is the great turning point. This is the beginning. And who is Jesus here? This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. The word Christ isn't his last name, it's his title. It meant anointed one or Messiah. It became it came to be used to refer to this long-awaited eternal king from King David's line who would bring God's kingdom and rule forever. The Messiah would come, the anointed one would come, the Christ would come. And so Mark's saying, he's here. This is the beginning of the story of the good news of Jesus, the eternal king who's come to bring in the kingdom. Who else is Jesus? Well, he is the Lord God himself. Mark quotes here from the prophet Isaiah. Do you see that in verses, the next couple of verses here? He says that a messenger will come who will cry out in verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, this is a quotation from Isaiah, a prophet who wrote about 700 years before this moment, and Isaiah had prophesied that a messenger would come saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And the Lord in that context is it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's God's name. The one true God, Yahweh, prepare the way for Him to come. And so Mark quotes this at the beginning, and who's the messenger? John the Baptist is the messenger. And John the Baptist cries out, prepare the way. And who is he preparing the way for? Jesus. Because Jesus is the one true God made flesh. So Jesus is this long-awaited human king from David's line, and he is also the Lord God himself who has come. What kind of story has just begun? He's truly God and truly man come to bring the kingdom. And listen to the message of this divine and human king. Verse 15, of still chapter 1 here, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, this good news. So the time is fulfilled. Jesus is saying, the wait is over. The time has come. There is a long story going on here. There's been a long time of waiting. And Jesus is saying, the time is up. It's coming to its fulfillment. You've been waiting for the kingdom of God to enter the world. And it is here. He's saying, I'm here. I have come to make all things new. So let's pause here. Jesus is saying that he came as part of a story. He's this king, this Christ, who's come to bring in the kingdom. And even in that Isaiah promise, prepare the way for the Lord, in that context from Isaiah, the Lord God is coming to reign, to bring his kingdom and bring, renew all things. So those are little glimpses of the story. What is this story that Jesus is saying is coming to its fulfillment here? Well, here's a summary of the Old Testament story leading up to this point. In the beginning, God created the world. He made everything good. He made Adam and Eve, the first humans, in His image as an expression of His goodness. Everything was perfectly in harmony. Relationship with God and humans was in perfect harmony. Humans' relationship with one another, perfect harmony. Relationship with creation itself, perfectly ordered and in harmony. We can call that the kingdom of God because God is the true king. This was his realm and everything was flourishing and at peace and humanity was to reflect God's good rule and spread his glory on the earth. But then Adam and Eve rejected God as their king. They wanted to rule 
apart from Him and do things their own way, assert themselves, the beginning of capital S selfishness entering into the world, and so now the world's broken. Um, God even cursed the world as a response to this, partly to show just how devastating sin is. And so we now unravel physically, right? we're living in this world under the burdens of disabilities and weaknesses. Our bodies start declining far sooner than we expected them to. We have mental and emotional challenges. The creation itself brings disasters like hurricanes and avalanches and tornadoes and COVID-19 and cancer. Spiritually, though our, does, our culture doesn't have much of a place for this, at least right now, there's a spiritual realm that is dark and set against us. And most deeply, we have participated in this rejection of God with our own sin, going our own way, living with capital S selfishness, loving God's creation above Him, asserting our own will against His. So God's good kingdom in Eden has been replaced by the world that we now live in, filled with many human kingdoms that are disasters. And after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised, though, that He would send someone into the world who would be the one true king, who would defeat evil and restore the blessings of Eden to all nations again. And as this promise develops in the Old Testament, this language of the kingdom of God and everything attached to that comes into focus. We're waiting for God Himself to come to make all things new, to set all things right, to bring His kingdom, and to do this through a promised human king through David's line. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for God to restore us to Himself, to give us new hearts, to transform us from the inside out, to set us free from our addictions, to heal us from our brokenness. And so, what does Jesus do? He announces that the kingdom has come, and what does He do? Well, He shows us what this means. So, He came to cast out the spiritual darkness from this world. So, look at verse 24 in chapter 1. A demon-possessed man confronts Him, and the demon says to Jesus, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus, through His action, answers that question. Yes, I have come to destroy you. He casts out the demon, and He does this time and time again in His ministry. He's saying, time is up. The kingdom of God's here. We're longing for healing, and He came to heal us of our sickness, suffering, and diseases. Look at verse 34. He healed many who were sick. I mean, this whole town's coming around Him, and He's healing many who were sick with various diseases, and He cast out many demons. He came to restore sinners to God through forgiveness. Look at chapter 2. He healed a paralyzed man, and in chapter 2, verse 5, He also said to him, this is more than just physical healing, He also said, your sins are forgiven. And this is what started to get Him into trouble with the religious leaders who wanted none of this, because Jesus is doing what God alone can do. He's forgiving people of their sins. He's restoring people to God Himself. And what else are we waiting for God to do when He comes to bring His kingdom? To restore the creation itself. And if you skip ahead to chapter 4, there's a terrible storm raging, and the disciples' lives are at risk, much like many other chaotic storms throughout history. And in chapter, verse 35, it says, Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, 
peace. Be still. And it was, because he's the Lord of creation. Uh, And he is setting the world right. The wind ceased. There's a great calm. Now, when Jesus did these miracles, he's not just showing tricks. He's, He's not just showing people that he is God, just proving his identity. He's showing people what he came to do. He's showing people that he is coming to bring the long-awaited kingdom, the kingdom that we've been waiting for since Eden, and to set everything right. But there's two keys to Jesus' kingdom that people didn't understand. And this leads us to then the great eucatastrophe, the great turning point, the joyful turn of history in Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus came and he pictured the kingdom in all of these ways. It was the great news of God's restoration of all things. And it seemed like Jesus was going to just keep spreading His goodness, town after town. I mean, is this just going to spread like a wave over the whole globe? That's what we would long for. And so, when will He fully and finally fix the broken world? He's the King and He's here. When will it come more fully? Then Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the place where people might expect Him to reign. And people rejected Him. They falsely accused Him and they crucified him. His disciples fled in fear and disillusionment. He was buried. It seems like everything's over. Hope was lost. Darkness is settling. Maybe he wasn't who he said he was. Maybe the kingdom isn't going to come. Maybe this is a big joke and it never will come. Everything's dark. And they just wait. And then one morning... At dawn, three women go to Jesus' tomb and find it empty. And this young man, an angel, says that he rose. What could that mean? Well, many things. Here's two of them. One, it means that his death was not a failure, but part of his plan. How so? Well, here's how he put it to people who didn't yet understand in Mark 10:45 the son of man speaking of himself came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many a ransom it's a payment given to set someone free to buy someone back out of slavery in many cases Jesus died as a payment for our sins our sin deserves judgment and death And Jesus took that for us on the cross. He died so that we could live. He suffered so that we could be healed. He was condemned so that we could be forgiven. He experienced death so that we could have eternal life. He had to take upon himself the essence of this curse that's over the world. God said, in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And this curse of death has been looming over us all. And Jesus came to take that curse and all that it entails, the full weight of the eternal wrath of God that sinners deserve. He did that so that we could go free. It was part of this turn. His death was part of this joyful turn. It didn't seem joyful in the moment because it will take the resurrection to then understand that that Friday was in fact good. So second, it means that his resurrection proves that the kingdom is in fact beginning. Because Jesus is risen as the king, and he's ruling right now, and he promised to return to finish what he began. 
So when he'll return, he won't just do isolated miracles this time. Healing several people, casting out some demons, giving forgiveness to some, uh, calming some storms. All of those were foretastes and glimpses of what he will do finally and fully in the end. He will say to all the chaotic mess of this created world and all of its storms and disasters, peace, be still. And it will be still and calm. And all those who trust in him will enter into the joy, his joy of the eternal kingdom and the renewal of all things to live in a physical embodied world forever with joy at one with God and at peace with one another. No wonder Mark says here that these three women on their way to the tomb, he says that it was very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen. Right? It's dawn. The sun is rising here. He's probably subtly saying there's no coincidence. This is the dawn of the new creation. Hope has come. So here's the point. The resurrection isn't just part of history. It's part of a big story, the true story of the world. The world has been waiting for this. Even those who don't know this story, this is what the human heart is longing for. This is what every culture is seeking. This is what we want. And Jesus came to say, I'm the source. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so we come to him for our salvation. And so the main way the kingdom is spreading now is as people come under the lordship of Jesus and follow him, they're resurrected spiritually, given new hearts, made alive in him, and restored to him, receiving forgiveness. And so we're waiting then for the full renewal and restoration of all things. He does not right now promise all these other physical material blessings, right? The, the, what you may have heard is the health and wealth gospel um, that gets it half right. Jesus is coming back to give health and glory to all his people forever. But now we still live in this old age as well with the suffering. The kingdom is broken in, but we're waiting for its fullness to come. And so this means for us then that no matter how hard life gets, no matter how dark life gets, uh, that sun rose that day in Jesus' resurrection, and so it will rise again and fully one day. So, last note here, this is part of our story. It's part of history. It's part of a big story. It's also part of our story, or maybe better, we could say you and I are part of this story. So, how do the women respond to this announcement? So, they find out that Jesus rose. How do they respond? Verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What is going on here? Well, they're adjusting to new reality. The resurrection, if it's true, is not something that any human being should be able to embrace flippantly, right? It's not a trivial moment. They're starting to grasp that perhaps everything has just changed. Everything in human history and everything for them. His death then wasn't the end, but part of the great joyful turn of the story of the world. His resurrection then wasn't just a magic trick, it's the beginning of the hope for the world. 
I mean, they're starting to adjust to a reality that they couldn't even fully see coming, that people 2,000 years later in Zionsville, Indiana, would be meeting here, celebrating that moment. In other words, their response is what happens when you first start to realize that Jesus' resurrection is the eucatastrophe of history. This is the joyful turn. This is the hope we've been longing for. This is the hope that means everything will be set right and made new one day. Tolkien wrote this about that word. He said, I coined the word eucatastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And I was there led to view that it produces its peculiar effect. See, he's talking about other stories, not this one yet. That those turning points in stories produce its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of capital T truth. Your whole nature chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint has suddenly snapped back. So something like this seems to be beginning to happen for these women. Even though Jesus told his followers he would die and rise again, they didn't believe it, they didn't get it, they didn't know how to compute that, put that into their mental framework. And now it seems like it's the end, but they're confronted with a new reality, and so they're afraid. But soon enough, it's going to turn to a deep and lasting joy, and they're going to tell the good news to the disciples. So that's what the resurrection is supposed to lead us to. And it can only lead us to this kind of joy if we see that it's part of the bigger story of the world that you and I are part of. I wonder if some of you may feel like these women. You're realizing this morning, perhaps, that the resurrection is more startling than you thought. Maybe this really did happen. Maybe we are part of an epic story that's true. Maybe the resurrection of Jesus, which you'd never considered before today in any seriousness, is actually the turning point of human history. Maybe Jesus really does offer forgiveness and cleansing, and by His Spirit's power can set us free from our addictions and sins. Maybe He really will bring restoration to God, and eventually the restoration of all things. Maybe one day we will get to experience the best this creation has to offer, minus the worst that we've experienced in this world. And if that's how you're feeling, then I encourage you to follow the path of this, these women. They didn't stop thinking about it. They, they eventually came to a fuller understanding and were filled with the joy. So read the Gospel of Mark. Read it from beginning to end. Get to know who the real Jesus is. Uh, ask a Christian friend if you have one. I'd love to talk with you. Um, recommend some other resources as well, but settle it at some point. Um, who is this Jesus? And maybe what you need to do is respond to Jesus' own call right now, this very morning, when he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. If you are hearing this good news wash over you, repent, turn from your sin and selfishness and believe in this good news. Trust in Jesus. And then out of this new life of trust, then get to know him through the gospel of Mark and speaking with other um, Christians. And for all of us, let's place our hope in Jesus. All the brokenness of this world, we've experienced it in unique ways this past year. All of it will be replaced by wholeness. Jesus is coming again. 
If he rose and said he's going to, he's going to. And everything that we're wanting to see fixed will be fixed. So as you look around at the world then, even today, and you just see the brokenness, and over this week and over this month, just as you see all the things that should not be here, think about the resurrection in connection with them. So as you see death looming, you think about your own death that's coming, and it's coming for all of us, and it's healthy to recognize that. But as you think about it, you think, yes, but Jesus rose. As you feel the weight of a disability you may have that actually feels to be getting worse, not better, it is not your eternal future. If you trust in Christ, you look at that disability and you say, yes, but Jesus rose, which means one day he'll make me whole. As you are just weighed down because you feel like you just fell on your face again, messing up a relationship or feeling addicted to a sin, you can look at that and say, yes, but Jesus rose. And that means I am set free in Him right now as I trust in Him and one day fully, finally set free from all the power of this sin. As you think about your loneliness and your longing of true friendship and you feel like, why is this not working for me? And it feels like it will last forever. You can say to your sadness and isolation and loneliness, but Jesus rose, which means right now He's my truest friend and one day he will remove all relational awkwardness, and I'll live in a kingdom of joyful friendship with God and all His people forever. As you feel the weight of your own guilt and shame, you can say, but Jesus rose. He left my sins buried in that tomb. He cast them as far as the east is from the west. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because He rose. As you see injustices in the world and wonder, how do we set things right? We the world's getting worse in front of us even trying to solve the problems with disagreements about the problems. What do we do? We say, but Jesus rose, and one day He will set all things right. And even now, He'll give us wisdom we need to keep taking steps to bring healing. So, Jesus rose, and He's spreading His kingdom even now. This is good news. Let's believe it. Amen. So let's pray and thank Him, and then we'll sing as loud as you can. Our Father, we thank You for history. Thank You that You, out of Your infinite wisdom and goodness and power, have overseen history to unfold as a story that is true and good, and beautiful. Thank you that we are part of it, and we pray that you, by your Spirit, would fill our hearts right now, every one of us, here in this room and those tuning in live stream. Fill us with joy and wonder and gratefulness and hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.